0: I was a child growing up in South Africa when my grandmother told me the story about a young man who my grandfather knew, who was part of the family, and she told me that he could run like the wind and that his English was never perfect.
1: This story has its roots spread between Fermanagh and Leitrim, and South Africa.
0: He was an orphaned Irish boy who was lost in Africa, it was believed that he was taken in by a tribe in the mountains until he was found by a man who traced his family and sent him back to Victorian Ireland. The boy was my grandfather's nephew and his name was Cyril Barton.
1: 76-year-old Rosemary Gilchrist is an author. She lives in Belcoo County, Fermanagh. Born in South Africa, she spent most of her adult life in England before retiring to Northern Ireland 12 years ago.
0: First of all, when I was in England, I wondered about Granny's story and um, I think I thought it you know, would be interesting to try and piece together and that was when I started collecting bits to try and piece it together to try and find out what had happened.
1: Could this be true about Cyril Barton, an Irish boy lost in South Africa in the late 1800s, taken in by a tribe, then found and sent home to Ireland. Rosemary has heard this story about her cousin all her life, but it's now trying to find out what actually happened. What became of such a youngster
0: Somewhere here all sorts of different things here, but he comes to the child eventually and think. Years later I came across an old family document written by my grandfather's cousin, Emily Smith vansbrook County Meath, and she had written down what she knew about each family member and the families into whom they married. Cyril's mother Florence and his
1: father Foliot left their home in the northwest of Ireland in 1875, and emigrated to South Africa in search of their fortune and a better life.
0: Unfortunately, the page on Florence has been torn out, but under details on Foliot Barton, his father. I found an account which stated that, that Florence had died of malarial fever and that the family had moved on towards the new goldfields in the northern province and en route, Foliot had his possessions and wagon stolen. Only uh, he was killed, but the maid grabbed the child and ran into the bush and eventually took him to her tribe in the mountains.
2: Nothing more was heard of the child for many years, although all inquiries were made as to what had become of him. This account was written in 1920.
0: We don't know how accurate it is because it's by somebody in Ireland. and We don't know how they got their information, but it says...
2: Years afterwards, his grandmother, Mrs Barton, had a South African newspaper sent to her in which was an account of a white child having been found by a hunter in a tribal area far up country. She at once got into communication with the hunter and eventually Cyril was brought home to his father's people in Ireland. The Irish account says that the hunter mentions the incident in a book. The story of how he was found is, I believe, told in Behind the Scenes in the Transvaal by David McKay Wilson, whom I'm told was the hunter who found Cyril. This led Rosemary to
1: finding a second account, this time a South African account of what happened to Cyril.
0: And this gave me the clue to look further, to see if I could find out more about this orphan child my grandmother had spoken about.
1: Through her local library, Rosemary sourced the book written by a David McKay Wilson, the man who claims to have found Cyril, and published in 1901.
3: On the day of my arrival at the Cantor, I had noticed a white child, not more than six years old, chatting freely and Khaffar to the native servants and acting in every respect just like a Khaffar child. He was clad in scanty rags, but his face and general demeanour suggested a certain refinement one would scarcely expect under such circumstances. Nobody seemed to know anything about him, except that the child now lived in the bush with the Kaffers, and in all but colour was one of them.
0: Kaffer was an Arabian word that just covered everybody who was black. Any white or black South African, for instance, reading now would be horrified by the use of that term. But in those days it was just a general... You could have called them just the black people, you know.
3: I spoke to him in English... He understood me with apparent difficulty, but answered in Kafir. I found that he was living the life of a wild animal, hiding in the bush the greater part of the day, emerging by stealth to scrape the leavings of food in the Kaffir cooking pots. Meanwhile, I never missed an opportunity for tracing the origin of the youngster, but learned very little, until an old digger suggested that the father was probably an engineer who had died in the camp and he gave me the name.
1: History has a strange way of being recorded. We have two varying accounts of what happened, an Irish version and a South African version.
0: Now confusion set in. The hunter's account is not quite the same as that of Emily.
1: Having known this family story for most of her life, now more than a hundred years later, Rosemary's attempting to unravel what's always been a mystery in her family.
0: What I've always wanted to do is find some sort of diary or anything like that that he might have produced or any sort of wrote down his life, you know, because even for the Victorians it must have been quite exceptional, the things he'd seen and done. But so far I haven't been able to track anything like that down. This is the uh, family tree. Um...
1: To start our search, we take a look back to Cyril's parents and their background with the help of Leitrim historian Porry Collin. It
0: goes on for miles... <laughs> like Magna <Carta> or something. <laughs> so I've just unrolled the bit relevant to us today. So those are all the 14 children.
1: Cyril's mother Florence was from an Anglo-Irish family called the Lyons-Montgomerys from Leitrim. As landlords in the area, the family led a privileged life.
4: I'm from Killarney, where the, the Lyons-Montgomerys had their big house.
1: Her father Hugh lyons Montgomery held the office of Member of Parliament for County Leitrim.
4: He lived... The real high life of what he thought was a country gentleman. You know, picnics on the lawn and all that, and croquet, and um, he had his own hunt. He gave great parties once a month at least on Saturday nights where all the neighbouring gentry came. And then, of course, he had to match off all those daughters' fees. And that was the big thing amongst the gentry, inviting eligible young men. The
1: marriage of Cyril's parents was announced in the local newspaper.
0: This is the marriage of Florence Maud, daughter of Hugh Lyons Montgomery, from Killarga Church by the Reverend J. Hurst, to Folliot Barton, third son of the late Colonel Barton in the Waterford County of Permana The Bartons were also
1: well known landlords in the area. Cyril's father, Folliot, trained as an engineer in London and was involved in railway survey work in Ireland and around Europe.
4: He was a young engineer. Yes, he was a professional man. That would be quite in order that they'd be paired off.
1: While nothing remains of Cyril's mother's house in Leitrim, Rosemary can go back to the Barton family home, which still stands in Pettico County Fermanagh. The house is now owned by Inica Alone, whose mother-in-law was a Barton. She has never come across Cyril's story, but the name at his father and a connection with mining rings a bell with Inica. I don't
5: know where ever lived here, you see.
1: She roots out a book about the mining heritage of Sligo.
5: Here, yeah, It is Folliot. After
1: his travels to Europe, Cyril's father came back to Ireland and set up a mining operation on Benbulban.
5: Right,
0: that's something that we, we haven't come across before, no. 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 So the Bartons had money invested, presumably, in that. Well, I... Uh, but well, it says 1870 yeah. to 75, as in
5: yes, it that he does, would be it? operating there, I suppose. Yeah. I don't think it lasts very long, the whole thing, doesn't it? Or well, it says there too. It no. looks like... Gerald a, Foley or something, does that mean anything to you?
6: The author is called... Uh,
5: Jerry
0: Foley.
6: See, mining would have gone on in this valley for over 20 years.
1: Of we tracked down Jerry Foley a retired engineer who's been researching mining in Sligo for over 20 years. He takes Rosemary and I up the mountain, where Cyril's father once mined.
6: We're at the southern end of the Glennave Valley, County Sligo. You're looking down towards Donegal that way. And at day you'd see the Blue Stack Mountains and right up into, into Donegal.
1: We stop at a derelict stone building at the foot of the cliff face.
6: The local historians say that it was built by... Foley had to house his miners. There's an area on top of the mountain called Linkarbury, which just comes within a few metres of the top of the cliff, OK? And about a quarter of a mile back from the edge of the mountain, or the cliffs, is where Foley had his mine.
1: This was a large-scale operation that would have needed a lot of investment and investors. Jerry believes that Foley was an innovative engineer for his time, and would have been well-known in the area because of the employment a business like this would have created. But things didn't go to plan. Just like today, mining back then was a precarious business, and the enterprise ended five years into a 21-year lease.
6: But didn't, it didn't last that long, you know. I reckon that it cost him an awful lot of money, and I think it broke him, really, you know what I mean? Like, he would have had to go for loans for it, you know. Like, he was a very good engineer... And he was a very ambitious engineer, you know, but he probably just overstepped himself a wee bit in that, you know.
1: Newspapers from January 1875 report news of Cyril's father's bankruptcy.
0: I had no idea that Feliott had been listed like that at all. He might have put all his money into it and then it didn't come to anything. That must have been considered by his family anyway, something of a disgrace.
2: SS Asiatic, Tuesday, 9th February, 1875. A hurried
1: escape from Ireland followed. After being declared bankrupt, Folliot and Florence, who was four months pregnant with Cyril at the time, left their home and mine and
2: headed for South Africa. My dearest children, Florence wrote letters home from the moment they set sail. We left Southampton a little after 12 o'clock on Friday, but were obliged to anchor until 7 o'clock the next morning because the fog was so thick. We got to Plymouth last Saturday night. Some more tough customers got on board there.
1: The late 19th century was a time of colonial expansion in South Africa. The discovery of diamonds and gold led to expanding frontiers and large-scale immigration of people from all over the world.
0: They heard that in South Africa they... Bridges were being built and harbors and all that sort of thing, and so they thought, "Well, plenty there of would employment, be yeah, work better there, prospects." But they didn't have anything to go to; they just went, yes, in the hope that they would find something. But
4: people of their class did that yes. at the time; that was quite normal. They would look after each other, you know. You'd know, always know somebody along, in, like, like the old school tie type of thing. And after all, he was an engineer, and that's where the thing was. And they would have a colonial mindset as well.
0: So they decided to try their luck. And I've got some several letters from Florence when she's writing back to Ireland to tell her family about it.
2: This is a grand country for money-making and if the workers are only steady and good tradespeople, they get very high wages. The likes of carpenters and blacksmiths
0: get 10 to 12 shillings a day. And then she goes on about their arrival and they find when they get to Cape Town and they get off that all the work is inland, further inland. Florence's letters go on to document the
1: trials and tribulations they encountered.
0: So they then have to travel and they travel by ox wagon. This is from the wagon, the Marianne. And she describes what it was like to be in an ox wagon with men slept underneath. She and her husband slept above and eventually she describes having a baby there and then going to Grahamstown in order to register the baby.
1: Cyril was born on the 4th of
2: June, 1875. My darling father, just a line to tell you that both your daughter and Afrikaner grandson are flourishing. We had baby christened on the 25th.
0: It's amazing because it puts you straight into what they actually, how on earth they they coped with situations that arose. I mean, how do you have a baby on a wagon?
2: He's growing so fast and strong, and I'm afraid he has a jolly temper of his own. I wish you could see him. I'm sure you would be so proud of him. In
1: 1878, after two years in Grahamstown, the Bartons moved on to Kimberley in the Northern Cape of South Africa, a frontier town that was site of the big diamond rush. People from all over the world flocked there in the hope of finding their fortune and there was plenty of work on waterworks and railways for engineers like Folliot. Florence mentions in her letters that he often had to leave her and Cyril for
2: weeks at a time to work and live in camp. Foliot, I am glad to say, has got some engineering task at £3 a day. I do not know how long it will last, but I think if he can only get on with the gentleman, he may get a permanent job. But like Foliot's luck... He has a youth over him who is not an engineer, and that makes him savage.
0: Once he was there, they were stuck, because oh, he would have to pay his own fare back. You see, most people took a job from here. They would arrange the job,
4: yes, and therefore
0: yes. their fare would be paid back again if they went and wasn't a return ticket, I know what you mean. But he had nothing. He was stuck. He went for nothing. He went there, and they were going to have to earn the money for the fare back, and that comes out in the letters too. You know, if only we had the money, but we haven't. So... It it,
4: so it, she wanted it, to come back. They were, they were stranded,
0: yeah.
2: 16th of May, 1880, Diamond Fields, Kimberley. We are so sick of the place, but how to get out of it we do not know. I want to see you all so much. It seems forever since we left home. Florence, Folliot and Cyril were really on their own. They struggled
1: financially throughout their time in Africa. Back in Ireland, many of the large estates were in decline and Florence's family in Leitrim went bankrupt around this time so they weren't in a position to help. And while Foliot's mother sent them £5 a
2: month, it wasn't enough to keep them going. Like our luck, Foliot only had the job for a week. We cannot understand except those youths in the office were jealous of him. Cyril was five years old yesterday. I had promised him a party for his birthday when I thought Folliot got permanent work, but I could not afford it when the day came. So our hearts were up, and now they are down again. There is some evil spirit in this place working against Folliot.
0: After writing quite regularly to her parents, her letters suddenly stopped. And they knew something had happened.
1: The letters stopped in early 1883. And apart from the mention in the family account that she died of malaria, the next trace Rosemary discovers of Florence is her death notice. With the help of the South African Genealogical Society, we sourced Florence's estate file in the South African National Archives.
7: I'm Jacob van der Merwe. I'm a principal archivist at the Cape Town Archives. At the moment, we're looking at a death notice of Florence Maud Barton, the name. The birthplace is Dublin in Ireland. The names of the parents, it only says Morganery. Morganery. Age, 27 years, uh, condition in life, housewife. She was married. It does not indicate the husband's name. And it just says... At what house or where did the person die? The Merriman Ward-Kimberley Hospital. Names of children, she had one son, Cyril, aged eight years. And whether the deceased has left any property, just so he says, unknown.
1: There's no mention of Folliot on the document, so he must have been working away at the time of her death, leaving eight-year-old Cyril or friends or neighbours to deal with the details. On the document, her maiden name, Montgomery, was noted as Mulganery, and it incorrectly says that she was 27 at the time of death, when she was actually
7: 32. The death notice was filed the 4th of August, 1883. The death notice does not indicate the the, the cause of death. I see it happening in in, in the winter months of 1883. uh, July is cold in the evenings, warm during the daytime, so cause of death could be... As a family story goes, she had malaria. That's a possibility in that area. But then again, from personal experience, a lot of people, because of the severe cold evenings, and if you are outside, you could get pneumonia, bronchitis. That's also a possibility. Or maybe a combination of a number of illnesses.
0: It confirms the fact that she died in Kimberley. So poor Cyril, because if he would have been there... but. Hopefully, there were neighbours around. People would have taken him in if she was taken into hospital. She says, somewhere other, that he's far too attached to me. That's obviously because she's got to have him with her most of the time. So can you imagine what it was like for him when she died? It must have been earth-shattering.
1: Word of Florence's death made it back to Ireland, either through a letter from Folliot or through the press. Fermanagh writer and historian Seamus McAnnie.
5: Very often what happened was that the notice would have been published in the local paper in South Africa and then one paper copied from another. Just like in the Irish newspapers we often see American papers, please copy. Like nowadays with Facebook, you share. The old newspapers worked in a very similar fashion. If you saw something in, in a paper that was of interest to you, you put it in your newspaper and so news spread that way.
1: He helps Rosemary and I search through microfilm of old newspapers in Enniskillen Library for anything to do with Cyril's story.
5: So here we have the Fermanent Times, Enniskillen, 6th of September, 1883. The births, marriages and deaths are up in the top left-hand corner. And here we have Barton, 26th of July, at midnight at Kimberley, South Africa, Florence Maud, wife of Follett Barton Esquire and daughter of the late H. Lyons Montgomery Esquire of Belle County Leitrim. The other thing to note is that she died the 26th of July and this paper is the 6th of September. So that shows how long it took for the news to get home.
1: We could find nothing else connected to Cyril's story in the various newspaper archives and wondered how we could confirm what happened next to Cyril and his father. Going back to the Irish family account of the story... Folliot and his son Cyril left Kimberley after Florence's death and moved to a place called the Devil's Cantour in the northern Transvaal region of South Africa, a distance of 900 miles from Kimberley.
0: They'd found gold and they called the area the Devil's Contour, which is the Devil's Office. It's described in old
1: writings as a place with a sinister atmosphere, lying on a plateau among giant sandstone boulders which looked like monsters, at the edge of a great drop into a valley. Not a place hospitable to an eight-year-old boy like Cyril. It was later renamed Capsahub, meaning the hope of the Cape.
8: I'm Hans Bormann. I am an historian. And I've written some 30-40 books on the history of the area and, and South Africa.
1: The South African Genealogical Society, unearthed a file relating to Cyril and his father's time in Capsahub. We sent it, along with the two written accounts of the story, to Hans Bornman in South Africa. He studied them in detail, and with his extensive knowledge of the area where Cyril was lost, he helped us fill in some more gaps.
8: This is the story of the prospector of that time. Gold was discovered in 1882 at Capshawil. Remember, prospectors were... Medical doctors, sailors, you name it, engineers, they were all focused on gold. Gold was the answer.
1: I think that Folly was chasing his fortune.
8: Definitely, yes. To be able to get his story yeah. when he got to Whip in 84, he was actually struggling. When he didn't make money in Kimberley, I think he came to Whip to see if he can make any money out of gold by prospecting, to try and save his position to find money. I think he wanted to go back to Ireland, but he didn't have money to return. Otherwise he would have returned after his wife died.
1: This wasn't the dream that Folliot had embarked on. With his wife dead, and having to drag his eight-year-old son through the wilderness in the hope of prospecting for gold, this was an existence far removed from life in the big house in Ireland. Out here, it was about survival.
8: Most of these people were people moving through. They were diggers, and they were prospectors, and they were miners. They moved where they could find gold.
1: It was a day-by-day life for the prospectors and gold diggers in Capsahoop, And in this wilderness, it was unlikely that there would have been women and children living here. What would Cyril and his father have seen when they arrived in this frontier town?
8: Well, it would have been a lot of shacks bars, etc., and then this hotel. That is what Burton would have found. And the only place that he could stay was in the hotel.
1: We find a receipt for this hotel in Foliot's estate file. It was owned by an Australian man called Walsh, and we can only assume that Foliot left Cyril there when he went out into the field to prospect
8: for gold. The boy had to come with him. What else would he have done with the boy? Well, his wife died. He had no money, he had to come and find gold. He had no family in South Africa as far as I know. I think he expected to get money or gold most probably to return to, to Ireland. That's the only reason why but why, why I think he brought the boy but who else could he have left it with? That was the only reason. Foliot Barton
0: um,
1: his estate while the family story tells us that Foliot was murdered documents in the file include doctors receipts ...and show that he was staying in the hotel when he died. J.E. Ashton.
0: So that must have been the doctor that was called. Called in, yeah. Must have been, yes.
1: Because of seasonal rains and storms... ...Hans estimates that Foliot and Cyril arrived in Capsahoop... ...in March or April of 1884. This was the most dangerous time for malaria. If malaria was not treated in time... ...the patient developed Blackwater fever, which was fatal...
8: When he got ill, now malaria takes approximately 14 days. And after 14 days, if you don't care for it, you are going to have a problem. Then you get what they call blackwater fever.
1: And that, it seems, is what happened to Folliot. He died on the 25th of April, 1884, and there's a record of his burial in an unmarked grave in Capsahub Cemetery.
9: This is the cemetery of Capsahub. A lot of people were buried in unmarked graves, including Folliot barton
1: Tour guide Louis-John Haverman.
9: No stone, no stone, no inscription. So these are all unmarked. Being paupers, of course, I think, I'm presuming in the, in the case of Folliot barton there wasn't enough money for a gravestone. So, you know, he was buried in unmarked grave, as were very many others as well. So, unfortunately, we don't have any idea which one is is his grave so it's a hell of a long way to come to die as a pauper in an unmarked grave you come out by sailing ship for 40 days get out here walk all the way here and you end up in a pile under a pile of rocks I'll cut. it's rather sad and in the case of Foliot Barton I mean anybody's guess where he's lying we don't know
1: Cyril had now lost his father just months after his mother's death and because of their nomadic life, probably the only two people he had known for all of his life. At eight years old, he was left all alone. The big surprise in Foley at Barton's estate file was to find an original letter written by David McKay Wilson, the author of the book that contains the South African account of Cyril's story. He was the Gold Commissioner and arrived at Capsahoop on the 1st of May, 1884, only five days after the death of Foliot. He died on the 25th of
8: April, 1884. And five days later, Wilson arrives on the scene. And he now has to report this death to the Master of the Supreme Court.
1: David McKay Wilson wrote to the authorities to report Foliot's death, saying that he left a son of eight years... £11 cash and some
8: clothing. And now we come to Siddle. Wilson knew this boy. Although in his book, he said the boy was there for a year and living under blacks, under a tribe. Now, coming back to the tribe, I did research on the tribes of the, of the low field. And the, the only tribe or people that actually lived at Carpshoop was the Swazi warriors who had to protect the area
1: the facts that Rosemary is discovering don't always chime with the written accounts of the story of her cousin Cyril, which say that he was looked after by a tribe after his father's death.
8: I went and spoke to some of these people and I wanted to find out about this white boy that he was talking to. Nobody knows about that. And that is why I can't, I can't believe that he was actually living in the bush with blacks with a tribe and trying to find food in, in, in containers and things like that. That doesn't make sense to me who would have cared for Cyril?
3: I arranged for the child to be looked after by an old butcher, and the camp raised a subscription to purchase his clothes.
8: There must have been a little bit of money, and, and, and Wilson doesn't say. So there could have been a couple of months where he, somebody looked after him. It could have been the hotel owner. It could have been um, Wilson or one of the people that actually lived there. He, they could have given him a, a place to sleep and, 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 and some food.
1: In his book... Wilson says he looked through old letters in the unclaimed post and found one addressed to Cyril's father.
3: It contained a bank draft for £50 pounds and was written by the mother of the dead man and urged him to return to his home. I communicated with the address given and in due course received an interesting reply, from which I learned that the waif was the son of a man of good family and that he was the heir to a considerable property.
8: And the boy was then... By Wilson? Because he couldn't leave them.
3: He then made contact, and I'm sure that he had an address. Money was remitted to enable me to send the child to England, and I sent him in the charge of two trusty coffers to Newcastle in Natal, a distance of some 300 miles, every yard being travelled afoot.
8: I don't believe that he was sent down. He was taken down by coach.
1: Once contact was made with his family back in Ireland, it's highly likely that rather than travel by foot... The 300 or so miles from Capsahoop to Port Natal, present-day Durban, that there would have been coaches moving through the goldfields, carrying food supplies and building materials.
0: That may well have been the way. The only thing that worries me about that is what happened to a child of by then nine when he got down to Durban. How did he know what to do and where to go? So I think he was went down with a letter which would probably say this child is to travel on, on a ship, could you please see him? On here is the enclosed money to pay for that. In which case, that person would, because in those days everybody had to help everyone else. So you know, it wouldn't have been something that surprised people. Uh, children who were travelling on their own usually travelled with a placard, with a name and address on it, so that people could say to them, "Oh yeah, that's where you've got to go. Go that way." You know. So I think that might be what happened to him once he got down.
1: And the notion from the Irish version of the story that Cyril had been missing for a number of
8: years? The most was 12 months. He died on the 25th of April, 1884. And he was buried a few days later. And his his death was reported in the beginning of May. So that is the period. And 84, by the end of that year, Cyril could, could be back in London or in England or in Ireland or wherever by the end of the year.
1: And the accuracy of what was written by David McKay Wilson.
8: Wilson per se, if we look at his book and I've I've analyzed his book, he was a bit t- too keen to prove himself as the hero of getting this boy back to England and finding a letter, etc. Although he knew, he knew the man's name, he knew the boy's name because in his letter, five days after his death, he could inform the government what has happened. So that story, please ignore it because it's not true.
1: With this new local knowledge from Hans and having seen primary source documents from the archives, what does Rosemary now think?
0: Definitely, I would definitely agree with that. I think he romanticised the story of the boy because he says in the book that he was the heir to a considerable property. And we know from looking into the family and talking to the Barton family that he was not the heir to anything. He stuck to the basic history, but he just added little bits here and there to make it more interesting.
8: Please remember one thing. Stories are told, and each one adds a little bit of story to it. I mean, if you want to dramatise a thing, what's wrong with that, By killing the guy? These people didn't think that we would ever do research work and be able to come to that conclusion that it's true. It's not true.
1: I went th- through the shipping records, but this is oh. a South African passenger list. list. right? It's from 1884 84. as well. Now, it says Master Barton. It sailed from Mauritius Natal... Port Elizabeth. From looking through old shipping records... I found proof that Cyril, then aged nine, did return to Europe, eight months after his father's death. Contrary to the written accounts and the story that Rosemary has always believed to be true, there is no evidence that Cyril was looked after by a local tribe. So what really happened during that eight-month period, we'll never know. Gourbe, Madeira and St Helena. Gosh, it certainly went around. Following a four-week voyage on the Norham Castle ship, presumably making his way on his own. Cyril arrived in Plymouth on the 17th of December, 1884. But you see, there was
0: no telephone, no quick communication. So what I want to know is when he got back, what happened to him at that particular point? Because the lions Montgomerys were spread round the world. There was only the Bartons to go to.
1: We don't know if Cyril made his way from England to Ireland at that stage. But we find another clue in the 1886 Irish calendar of wills, an annual summary of will and probate information. His parents' names are listed in this catalogue.
0: And he's mentioned, this brother, Thomas Lloyd Barton, is mentioned there as, is that the executor of, of Elliot's will?
1: Cyril was put into the care of an uncle in London, Thomas Barton, a tea merchant.
0: So he made his brother officially because Thomas was obviously close enough to Foley, for Foley to have made arrangements that if anything happened to him, this brother would have been in charge. There you are, we've had another breakthrough. (laughs) St Paul's, a
1: secondary school close to where Cyril's uncle Thomas lived, have a record of Cyril starting there in September 1889, aged 14, and that his uncle Thomas paid his school fees. We've no record of where he was schooled in between, We can only guess that he was tutored at home.
10: I am sending you a number of letters written by my mother from South Africa. They were among Aunt Henny's possessions when she died.
1: Our next clue as to what happened next to Cyril is to be found in a letter he wrote to Rosemary's grandfather in 1933, passing on his mother Florence's letters.
10: When you have read them, you can burn them.
1: It's written on paper with an unexpected letterhead. The office of the Controller and Auditor General of Ireland, Merrion Street, Dublin.
11: Good afternoon, ladies. (laughs) Our search
1: (laughs) leads us to Dublin Castle, and the office of the current Controller and Auditor General, Seamus McCarthy.
11: I should actually explain the circumstances whereby we came across these papers. We're moving office, and we have an old safe that papers were taken out of. And I went through it and I discovered that among the papers was a set of files relating to staff of the office, and they were obviously very old, so they would normally then be shipped off to archiving. And it was, by chance, a couple of weeks later, that your phone call came and a request for, did we have any information? And there it was, it was the second one I put my hand on.
0: is that incredible? It's almost like it was organised. It was supposed to happen. <laughs> yes. Yeah.
1: With documents such as letters, job applications, references and contracts, the file is a treasure trove of information about what followed in Cyril's life, starting with a record of service that looks just like a CV. After finishing school, Cyril joined the British Colonial Service aged 20 and trained as an auditor. He was then posted to the Central African Protectorate, now Malawi, in 1889.
10: Returned January 1902 to Exchequer and Audit Department, invalided on account of malaria. And then he was reposted to Transvaal.
0: And then we had this record saying that he was ill. Yeah. Took time off and...
11: Permanently invalided from Transvaal in 1907.
0: And that seems possibly to have been malaria.
1: We know for certain that by 1909, Cyril, now 34, was living in Dublin.
10: 1909, appointed temporary clerk, post office... Aldborough House, Dublin, served seven years engaged in accounting work, retrenched due to outbreak of war and consequent reduction of staff.
1: Interestingly, Cyril notes that he was not enlisted in the Army due to a problem with his eyesight.
10: Served in Department of Agriculture and Technical Instruction for three and a half years, retrenched owing to reduction of staff, November 1921.
11: I think what's particularly interesting is it's an example of a British administration public servant who then came to work for the Free State Administration. You had the added complication of the War yes. of Independence.
10: I declare that I have not taken any part with or aided or abetted in any way whatsoever the forces in revolt against the government. What's quite
11: interesting is to see the oath of loyalty to yes. the state. It certainly is reflective of the concern at the time. That
10: there be fealty to the to to the state. Cyril Barton, twenty first of march nineteen twenty
1: three. We've no photos of Cyril, but seeing his signature on original documents brings him to life. And there's an obvious pattern of Cyril constantly moving around, unsettled in where he lived and worked which has echoes of his early life with his parents in South Africa.
11: I think these are the conditions of his employment as a temporary clerk. And I think he doesn't appear to have ever become an established civil servant and therefore Mm. he wasn't entitled to a pension.
1: Even though Cyril wasn't entitled to a pension, He was given a lump sum upon his retirement as a gesture of goodwill.
11: It doesn't sound like he was well supported or or at least that he had any other form of support. It doesn't,
0: does it? No, no.
11: And I think that that would have been a a consideration taken into account by by the Department of Finance and by his own employers here. The fact that we have something here in that the importance of record keeping and having the detail... I mean obviously it was necessary for pension purposes and, uh, yes. and so on. It's a bit like doing an audit, <laughs> yes. except it's an audit of a life rather yes. than uh, of uh, pounds, shillings and pence. Yes.
1: It looks like it's still flat, sir. In our search, no diaries written by Cyril or further correspondence with family turns up. And we draw the conclusion that Cyril didn't keep in touch with his extended family. As Rosemary and I look through census and electoral records, we see that he lived as a boarder in various houses around Dublin, including on Talbot Street and Lower Grand Canal Street. He then moved to the Ivy Hostel on Bride Road in the 1930s, a place that provided clean and safe accommodation for working men who had little means. Cyril Barton. Later, St. Kevin's Institute, Dublin. Cyril's death certificate tells us that he died of cancer on the 8th of November, 1947, in what's now St. James's Hospital in
0: Dublin. He left no will. Bachelor, 71 years. Carcinoma of... Pharynx. Yes, something like, it looks like that.
1: After years of searching for Cyril, Rosemary finds his final resting place in Dublin's Mount Jerome Cemetery, where Alan Massey shows us to his grave.
10: That's the way marked with stones there. Oh right. Okay. So, would he be here
1: in his own or is no, there No,
10: not smart. We call them common graves. They were formerly known as paupers' graves. Right. So, that's the way to put so, it honestly to you. Right. So common be grave layers. means different people from different families in the one grave.
0: Right.
1: Yeah. There's no headstone or a record of who buried Cyril.
0: You're old Cyril, at least somebody has been to his grave and we may for all we know be the only people that ever have. We lay some flowers. There was a little boy born in Africa and then lived through troubled times with his parents who were constantly struggling to maintain a standard of living, having both been used to good middle-class life in Ireland and suddenly finding themselves in the backwoods of Africa with a lot of things that they didn't understand.
1: And Cyril, a remarkable survivor, who after the traumatic loss of his parents eventually made the journey they never made back to their home country.
0: It's a closing of a life in Africa, in Dublin, Ireland, which is very appropriate, seeing that he was from an Irish family. Yes, I feel I've now followed him through the full circle of his life. There's somehow there's something final but quite nice about that. It does bring it to a tidy close.